Well, we got down through verse 15 last time. Let's pick it up this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 16. Paul writes, I say again, let no one think me a fool. If otherwise, at least receive me as a fool, that I also may boast a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly, in this confidence of boasting. Seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. To our shame, I say, that we were too weak for that. But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly. I am bold also. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant. In stripes above measure. In prisons more frequently. In deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things which come upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble, and I do not burn with indignation? If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor, under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Dam Damascenes with a garrison, desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and escaped from his hands. As I was studying this passage and putting together my thoughts for this week, what hit me the hardest was the stark contrast. Here I was, sitting at home, sheltered from the elements. I was comfortable and warm and secure and at peace. I was reading Paul's words with a cup of coffee in my hand. It had cream and artificial sweetener, no less. There was enough food in my kitchen, we could have fed a dozen neighbors. Spilling milk on my laptop was the biggest trial I faced the whole morning. I suppose the words that would have best described me that day was at ease. And after reading the second half of 2 Corinthians 11, I wondered what in the world would the Apostle Paul have thought about my version of living for Christ in contrast to his. There are Christians today with a far more troubling life than us. We sit in our padded chairs in our climate-controlled sanctuary and worship God freely. 
while believers from Muslim lands get jailed, their property gets confiscated, they're killed or run out of their own country. Let me say, it just seems foolish for me to be talking to you about beatings and shipwrecks and hunger. I mean, what do I know about sleeplessness often when I usually go home after church on Sundays and take a nap? This kind of talk from a person with my advantages does seem foolish. And yet I take comfort in the fact that this kind of talk also seemed foolish to Paul. He was embarrassed here to bring up his sacrifices and his sufferings for Jesus' sake. You see, even the greatest sacrifice, even a lifetime of suffering, pales in comparison to the eternal God leaving heaven. The holy God taking on sin. The loving God subjecting himself to man's hate. The living God dying in our place. All to redeem us for himself. You see, whether our calling from God is a quiet life of humble dedication or a brave life of persecution and hardship, we are foolish to brag about what we have done. All the glory, all the honor belongs to Jesus. Our lot in life is set by God's will, and His grace is sufficient for whatever demands His providence might place upon us. With that in mind, Paul begins in verse 16. He says, I say again, let no one think me a fool. If otherwise, at least receive me as a fool, that I also may boast a little. Now here in chapter 11, Paul is going to do something that he avoids doing almost everywhere else. He boasts. He acts the fool by focusing on himself. You see, in any discussion involving the gospel of grace, why would we ever put the spotlight on our own portfolio? Grace is love that's on the house. It's unmerited. It's undeserved. Its origin is God's heart, not our works. That means it's not about me. It's all about Jesus. To boast in my own achievements is truly foolish. You remember Mr. T? Remember Mr. T? The beloved tough guy of the 1980s. He was on the A-team. He even showed up in a Rocky film. Mr. T. The one thing about Mr. T that he didn't like was fools. You remember Mr. T had an expression, I pity the fool. You remember that? Actually, Mr. T, or Lawrence Terod, his real name, he's a Christian. In fact, he's a cancer survivor who credits the book of Job for getting him through with his faith intact. After Hurricane Katrina, Tarod stopped wearing gold chains out of respect for the people who had lost everything in the floods. Today, he boldly shares his faith and he pities the fool who doesn't bow to Jesus Christ. Ordinarily, Mr. T, like the Apostle Paul, would pity the fool who talked about his own experiences rather than highlight the grace that's in Christ. But you see, the critics in Corinth had placed Paul in a difficult situation. Here in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul was forced to boast. The false teachers in Corinth were proud and arrogant. They called themselves super apostles as they questioned Paul's apostolic calling and credibility. His character was the target of their attacks on the gospel. Thus, by defending the legitimacy of his own ministry, Paul was defending the power of the gospel. This is why Paul says in verse 16, he needs to boast a little. 
He's about to indulge in a little foolishness. As he said in verse 1, a little folly. He's saying, consider me a fool if you want, but I'm not acting foolish, but of necessity. And then he writes, what I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting. See, normally, Paul would have never, ever spent a whole chapter on himself. Most often, Paul followed the example of his Lord Jesus. He assumed a low profile. He identified with others. He was humble. He saw himself as a servant. In all he did, he pointed to another. Paul was about Jesus, not tooting his own horn. Yet to prove his own loyalty to the gospel, in these chapters, the apostle does talk about the sacrifices he's made and the scars that he bore for the gospel's sake. In verse 18, he writes, seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. Boasting was unusual for Paul, but not for these Corinthians. It was a favorite pastime. They were always talking about their advantages and their achievements. The false prophets in Corinth were legalists. They were trusting in grace. They weren't trusting in grace. They were relying on grunt. That's why they were so quick to highlight their own charity and their own piety and their own good works. They bragged in the flesh, in their own human accomplishments. And here Paul is stooping to their level. He is also going to brag about himself and his works, not to earn God's favor but to show the results of God's grace in his life. To grasp the next verse, you got to read it with some sarcasm. Paul writes, For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. The Corinthians were so stuck up, they perceived themselves as so wise. If they were in the habit of tolerating foolish boasts, why not put up with Paul's foolishness for a few moments? Paul isn't doing anything that they didn't usually welcome. In fact, the Corinthians didn't just tolerate the proud and the selfish boasting of the false prophets. They put up with all kinds of foolishness from them. Paul writes in verse 20, he says, For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, If one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face, you put up with this. He doesn't understand. As I mentioned last week, over the years, it has amazed me at the abuse gullible Christians, church members that is, are willing to take from so-called spiritual leaders. There are pastors who use their clout, their supposed spiritual authority to misuse and abuse people for their own ends. Notice the crimes done here by these false prophets. Put in bondage, devour, take, exalt himself, strike. Here's the modus operandi for a false man of God. Here's how bogus pastors manipulate and control people. First through bondage. They're great at the legalistic guilt trip. They expect you to conform to their own unbiblical norms. By pushing people around, they feel more important. They devour. They prey on people, not pray for people. The false prophet is a butcher, not a shepherd. They are also on the take. Even when they give, they give to get. For this kind of pastor, it's what's in it for me. 
The phony man of God always has ulterior motives. And then Paul says they exalt themselves. They puff themselves up. The false prophets swell, but they don't grow. And there's a big difference. Growth adds substance and strength to my life. But a man inflated who just exalts himself is only full of hot air. And finally, a false prophet strikes you on the face, he says. In other words, a slap in the face in the first century was a put-down. And these false prophets in Corinth, they manipulated people with insults. They put people down to keep them in line. And here's the mystery of it all. Why would anyone tolerate these kinds of shenanigans in the name of God? Paul was angry at these men from passing themselves off as apostles of Christ, but he was also upset with the gullible Corinthians for letting these guys get away with it. And so in verse 21 he says, To our shame, I say that we were too weak for that. Again, notice Paul's sarcasm. His critics were accusing him of being weak. And Paul replies, well, I'm glad I'm too weak to abuse you in such a brazen way. If the hypocrisy of the false teachers made them seem strong, then Paul was happy to be viewed as weak. But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. And here Paul begins to match the credentials of his enemies. Whatever makes these false teachers so confident, he wants to compare resumes For Paul, he says, he is inferior to no one. See, these false prophets had nothing on Paul. And he sets out to prove it in verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Here Paul's response gives us a clue into the claims these false teachers were making in Corinth. Apparently, these were the Judaizers. These were the infamous arch enemies of the early church, the arch enemies of the gospel of grace. They were Jews who saw Christianity as just a branch of Judaism. Oh, they were okay with faith in Jesus, just as long as you also became a Jew. You were circumcised. The Judaizers believed that Gentiles first had to become Jews in order to be saved. And Paul opposed this falsehood everywhere he went. Here he says that he had the perfect Jewish pedigree. A Hebrew? Check. An Israelite? Check. Of Abraham? Check. Paul had checked them all off, but none of that mattered. For Paul knew it's not what's on your birth certificate that makes you pleasing to God. It's whether you've been born again by His Spirit. That's the issue. And that happens by faith in Jesus and faith alone. Our salvation is a lot like one particular wife's love for her husband. One day her husband asked her, said, Honey, did you ever love anyone before me? His wife thought for a bit and then replied, said, No, darling, I once respected a man for his great intelligence. I admired another man for his remarkable courage. I was captivated by yet another man by his good looks and charm. But with you, darling... Well, what else can explain it except love? Well, like the wife's attitude toward her husband, God chooses us, not because of our brains or our bravery or our beauty. It's all about grace. It's only because of his love for us. This is why God chose Paul to be an apostle. 
And this is what motivated Paul to love these foolish Corinthians. God had put a love in his heart for them. In 2 Corinthians, Paul has reminded his readers of his jealousy toward them, his generosity to them. Now he grows bolder. He enumerates his sufferings for them, all that he endured to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. You know, understand, every artist has a portfolio. It's a sample of their work. It's a collection of their paintings and their drawings. And by looking through that portfolio, you get a feel for the personality of the artist, their style, their skill. This is what Paul does in the second half of Corinthians chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He reveals his ministry's portfolio. He wants the Corinthians to see what kind of minister and ministry he truly had. Verse 23. He says, are they ministers of Christ, speaking of these false teachers? Oh, I speak as a fool. Again, he recoils at this whole idea of boasting, and yet he continues on. Are they ministers of Christ? I am more, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. Paul begins to pull out from his portfolio, and he breaks with convention. Rather than listing his awards and his achievements and his accolades, showing off the best of Paul, he lists his numerous sufferings and hardships. There was a document that circulated through the Roman Empire at the time of Paul. It was entitled, Reeves Justi Divi Augusti. Pardon my Latin. Its translation is, The Deeds of the Divine Augustus. It was an obituary written for the first emperor of Rome, Caesar Augustus. It consisted of a short intro followed by 35 paragraphs divided into four sections. First came his political career and his advancements. Second was his public benevolence or the good deeds that he did. Third chronicled his military triumphs and conquests. Fourth was a sonnet of Rome's love for its emperor. Understand the Reeves Justi was really just Roman propaganda. It ignored any mention of Augustus' struggles and setbacks. It glossed over any blemishes on his record. It was really just a promotional tool. Its whole intention was to put a good facade, a good face on Rome and its emperor. And here, when Paul writes of his ministry, you'd think he would fill his portfolio with flattering details. Paul's Reeves Justy might include the churches he started, the size of the crowds to which he preached, the numbers of people converted, the celebrities reached, the miles he traveled, the councils he attended, the disputes he settled, the books he wrote, the visions he saw, the money he raised, the pastors he trained and sent out, certainly the miracles he performed. Instead, Paul's validating deeds, his Reeves Justy, was filled with the contrary. The apostle enumerates his sufferings and setbacks, his hurts and hardships. You see, Paul didn't adhere to a false gospel. Obey God and he'll guarantee you health and wealth. No, that wasn't the gospel Paul embraced. To Paul, God wasn't a meal ticket. God wasn't a blessing dispenser that you just plug in a prayer and out pops an answer. 
In fact, the Apostle Paul gloried in weakness, in pain, in struggles, for it proved that he served God because he loved Him, not just because he was loved by Him. Every year, just after Thanksgiving, I meet with a group of Calvary Chapel pastors from the surrounding area. Nearly 30 of us gather in East Alabama at a place called Shaco Springs. We spend three days together. We fellowship, we worship, we play basketball, we relax a little bit, we have some fun. But we also have some rules. First is the Vegas rule. What goes on at Shaco stays at Shaco. We like to protect our privacy. Second, no preaching. And since we're all preachers, we know when somebody's doing it. Third, no bragging. And then fourth, the pecking order is determined by scars and years. You see, in any group, there's a pecking order. You know what I'm talking about. Who's the leader? Who's respected? Who's the newbie? Et cetera, et cetera. A pastor having lots of people doesn't mean that much. There are lots of ways to draw a crowd. Having a nice facility means you're affluent, not necessarily spiritual. What the pastors in this group respect are the scars that a man carries. In other words, what it cost him to follow Jesus and how long he survived. His longevity also carries much weight. And this was what This is more like Paul's criteria. This is what Paul used to judge the faithfulness of a man's ministry. Scars and struggles. When the troops of Alexander the Great mutinied in 324 B.C., the general, he stood before his men and he gave a speech. He said, which of you has labored more for me than I did for him? Come now. Whoever of you has wounds, let him strip and show them, and I will show mine in turn. For there is no part of my body free from wounds, nor is there any kind of weapon used, the traces of which I do not bear on my person. The sword, arrows, missiles projected from engines of war, stones and bolts of wood, yet I am still leading you as conquerors over all the land and sea. Did you know that before Alexander, it was fashionable for Greek men to have soft skin? He was the one who set the trend for rugged exteriors. You see, his scars were the proof of his leadership, his courage, his commitment to his troops. And this is why chapter 11 here endears us to Paul, for it shows us his scars. You think you've suffered for Jesus' sake? Listen again to the intro to Paul's Reeves Justy, verse 23. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. And what all is in these pregnant phrases, we have no idea. Paul says, in prisons, plural, prisons. In Acts, we have a record of Paul being in jail just once. Acts 16, there in Philippi. Yet here he mentions that he was jailed multiple times. In other words, it was a frequent occurrence. And realize Roman prisons didn't have big screen TVs and beds and bunks and hot meals and ping pong tables. They were caves and basements. They were rat infested. They were always damp and dark. The only bathroom was a bucket in the corner. And if a friend didn't bring you food that day, you didn't eat. 
Understand, when God called Paul to a town to minister, jail time was part of his expectation. You know, when I'm asked to speak at another church or at a pastor's conference, in addition to the impact that I know is going to be brought by God's Word, I leave thinking, a short flight, a pickup from the airport, a nice venue, a large group, some cool music, a comfortable hotel, maybe a generous honorarium. But when Paul was called to visit a new city with the gospel, in addition to the impact of God's Word, he was wondering, what will the prison be like? How many lashes will be required this time? And yet Paul obeyed. He went. And what does he mean here by labors? In deaths often. Paul was like a cat with nine lives. How many times did he barely escape death? We don't know, but we know it was many. In verse 24, he says, From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. This was the punishment of the synagogue. When a Jew was guilty of blasphemy, his cloak was ripped from his back, and he was subjected to the lash 39 times with a cat of nine tails. One Jewish source said, A third of the stripes were placed on the back, a third to the right shoulder, and a third to the left shoulder. Deuteronomy 25 stipulated 40 lashes, but if the 40 were ever exceeded, the torturer would receive the same punishment. So we always stopped at 39, just in case, just to make sure no one got carried away or someone lost count. And five times Paul endured this kind of beating. Five times. That's a total of 195 lashes. Imagine Paul when he took off his shirt. There was a crisscrossed array of scars across his back. How long did it take for him to recover from each of these ordeals? He, did, he went through this five times. Did his wounds get infected? How long did it take for them to clear up? How did he manage the pain? And this happened to him five times. And if it were me, when I started going to town, I would have started skipping the synagogue. I'd just go straight to the Gentiles, man. I didn't need another beating, but not Paul. He loved the Jews. He knew that the gospel was to the Jew first, and he obeyed. And then he adds three times, I was beaten with rods. This was the Roman torture. Administered with a bamboo cane. There were no limits to this punishment. It was totally left to the discretion of the local authorities. You know, the book of Acts never mentions Paul's 195 lashes. Only once does it record a Roman beating. Again, Acts 16. Paul endured this tor torture, though, on two more occasions as well. He says, once I was stoned. This is mentioned in Acts 14. It happened in Galatia at the town of Lystra, little country town. Paul was the victim of the violence of a flash mob. False teachers had convinced the locals that he was the enemy. This mob all gathered together and they pelted him with rocks and left him for dead. Years later, Paul would write to these Galatians and he would mention his scars as proof of his love for them and his faithfulness to the gospel. Realize in Paul's mind, his finest hour was not when he was on top of the world, honored by men, but when he was 
under a pile of stones for Jesus' sake. He tells us three times I was shipwrecked. Only one shipwreck is mentioned in Acts 27, in the book of Acts, chapter 27. And at this point in the timeline, that shipwreck has yet to occur. This means that Paul is speaking of three other disasters that were not told of in the book of Acts. We know that flimsy wooden vessels and sudden storms and poor navigation made sea travel in the first century risky business. Just ask Paul. Every time the boat he was on drifted away from the dock, he didn't know if his foot would ever sit, set foot on dry land again or whether he would end up shark bait. And yet Paul crisscrossed thousands of miles across the Mediterranean world to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he mentions one of his trips, a night and a day I had been in the deep. He stayed afloat once for 24 hours, just treading water, maybe holding on to a broken timber. He kicked away the fish that were nibbling on his legs. He was in journeys often. Imagine the stamps in Paul's passport, the frequent flyer miles he logged. In perils of waters, Paul not only crossed seas, but he also swam through rivers, and he trudged along in swamps, in perils of robbers. You, you remember Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan? You, you remember that story. Well, it starts with robbers ambushing a traveler on the windy road from Jericho to Jerusalem. In other words, there were few state troopers around at the time. It made travel of any sort a dangerous proposition. There were robbers everywhere, and Paul was victimized by several. In perils of my own countrymen, that is the Jews. In perils of the Gentiles, well, that's everybody else. Paul was an equal opportunity target. Everybody attacked him. In perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. In short, Paul encountered opposition on all sides. The life God called Paul to live for the gospel's sake was extreme and difficult and full of a million perils. Paul endured persecution from the enemy, but he also suffered from the execution of his ministry. He says, in weariness and toil. Think of his 18 months in Corinth. By day, he worked with Aquila and Priscilla in their tent-making business, whereas by night, he taught the Scriptures in the synagogues and in their homes. No time off, no vacation, no downtime, no time for himself. He pressed on for Jesus' sake in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Again, the prisons in Paul's day didn't have orange jumpsuits for their inmates. When you were shipwrecked and plucked from the sea, the Red Cross wasn't standing there with a blanket to drape you and keep you warm. There were all kinds of situations where Paul found himself shivering and naked, famished and thirsty. In fact, the early church father, John Chrysostom, who lived in the 4th century, much closer to New Testament times in the time of this writing, in speaking of 2 Corinthians 11, he commented that he believed that Paul didn't tell the half of all that he had suffered for Jesus' sake. In other words, he endured far more than he told us. Do you get a sense 
of what this man's life was like. You know, when you have a bad day, you should read this chapter. It'll cheer you up. At least your life is not as rough as Paul's. And yet Paul writes the most lofty theology in all the Bible. As he's going through these trials, he lives in deep communion with God. He possesses an unquenchable joy, an inexhaustible faith. He had the faith to see his trials as light afflictions, he calls them. Paul could do all things through Christ who strengthens him. He pressed on to know Jesus. So what's our excuse? We get a headache, we can't come to church. Somebody else can usher today. Are we serious? In light of Paul, we all could buck up a little bit, don't you think? And to top it all off, I mean, here is the icing on the cake that was Paul's ministry. Verse 28 reads, Besides the other things that comes upon me, my deep concern for all the churches. This was Paul's most relentless stress, not the perils or robbers or prisons or labors. His greatest stress was his care for the churches. Here's what dominated Paul's thoughts. Here's what filled up his waking hours. Here's what kept him up at night. It was the daily concern he carried for the spiritual health of the churches he planted and essentially still pastored. There were so many ways for the Christians, these new Christians, these churches to get sideways. Some were immature. Some were filled with false doctrine. Some were divided. Some were carnal. Some were being preyed upon by wolves in sheep's clothing. And Paul cared about them all. He paid visits. He wrote letters. Thankfully, he wrote letters. We still read them. He sent representatives. If it were today, Paul would have tweeted and texted and posted in Facebook. And certainly, most importantly, Paul prayed. All his other cares were secondary issues compared to the deep concern that Paul had for the many churches. The language in verse 28 here is so descriptive. When Paul writes, what comes upon me daily, think of someone being smothered under a blanket. It speaks of an intolerable load, something you just can't shake off. And as a pastor, it's here where I can relate to Paul. For though I drink my coffee in the morning with cream and sweetener, and I sit on a comfortable couch in a climate-controlled living room, I too carry a concern for the people and the church that I pastor. Even on my day off, I'm not really off. I still think of you, this church, as well as the other churches to which I'm affiliated. Calvary Chapel is my deep concern. Some of you might be aware of what's going on within Calvary Chapel nationally. One of the pastors branched off to start a new association with a different emphasis. And for the first time in 30 years, the unity we've enjoyed in Calvary Chapel is sort of now in question. As a Calvary Chapel pastor and as a Calvary Chapel council member, this grieves me. I've worked hard to respond appropriately. A few weeks ago, a group of pastors, they were posting on a private blog and they were criticizing how we as the leaders in Calvary Chapel could let such a thing happen. I wrote them back. This has not been easy on any of us. It has taken a toll on me personally. 
My pastor asked me to take a seat at the table. Perhaps some of you could have done a better job. It seems you think so, but I have taken this responsibility seriously and am doing my best to think any of us would approach this flippantly is insulting. A fellow pastor should know the deep concern God's Spirit puts in a pastor's heart for the church. And recently I felt this concern as never before. Well, in verse 29, Paul writes this, Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble, and I do not burn with indignation? Paul cared for the weak and the fragile, since he saw himself as one of them. Paul, too, was needy. And thus, when someone weak in the faith was taken advantage of or caused to stumble, Paul got angry, full of indignation, he says. He wasn't afraid to step up and defend that weaker believer. Paul wraps up his portfolio, or his Reeves jesty, by stating in verse 30, If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. In other words, the proof of his ministry's legitimacy wasn't its attendant stats or its bank statements, but its scars. Paul didn't point to his stars, but to his scars. And he closes with his own Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain story. He says, The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying about what I'm about to tell you. Now that kind of build-up here makes us assume that he's going to bring up some kind of a miracle, maybe. Paul's going to brag about some supernatural feat. And so he calls on God to assure us that he's not lying. You figure Paul is going to tell us a story that sounds too good to be true. We're going to want to Google it afterwards and check it out. What great exploit is he going to point to to validate his ministry? Well, here it is. In Damascus, the governor, under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison, desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. Wait, wait a minute. What does Paul pull out of his portfolio to demonstrate the faithfulness of his ministry? How do you top off a resume? How would you present the best of Paul? Preaching in Athens, maybe. Planting churches all over Asia, perhaps. Hey, even converting Caesar's own household. That would be cool. No. How about sneaking out of town? Paul was lured from a basket in a wall in Damascus. The apostle left town not in a ticker tape parade, but in a clandestine escape. He went out with the trash. This won't be the picture on his promotional packet, I guarantee you. But here's the point. These false teachers in Corinth, they were saying that God chose them because of their exceptional talents, their righteousness. Paul said just the opposite. According to worldly criteria and human standards, Paul was nothing special. He was weak and needy, yet God in His grace chose him to do mighty things. And here's the lesson for us. Follow the man who depends on God's grace, not the proud man who boasts in himself. When it comes to the pastor who loves the spotlight, as Mr. T would say, pity the fool. Paul lived his life to bring God glory. So should we.